It's uh, Psalm 148, verses 1 to 13. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his host. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He fixed their bounds, which cannot be passed. Praise the Lord from the earth, you sea monsters and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and frost, stormy winds fulfilling his command. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars. Wild animals and all cattle, creeping things and flying birds. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth. Young men and women alike, old and young together. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. Amen. <clears throat> Hebrews 1. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Therefore, brothers and sisters, holy partners in a heavenly calling, consider that Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. Yet Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Earlier this week, the former mayor of London, Ken Livingstone, resigned from the Labour Party amidst ongoing accusations of anti-Semitism. Meanwhile, the party leader, Jeremy Corbyn, continues to face accusations that he has failed to adequately address an anti-Jewish bias within his party. Well, whatever the rights and wrongs of the accusations levelled at Messrs Livingstone and Corbyn, and I'm certainly not going to get drawn into that from the pulpit, the question of how non-Jews should relate to Jews is, it seems, a highly relevant topic. 
It's well known that Western Christianity, the political and religious tradition from which many, if not most of us, come, has proved itself capable of perpetuating, condoning, or justifying the most horrific abuses against the people known as the Jews. From the anti-Jewish policies of the pre-Christian Roman Empire to the post-Constantinian targeting of the Jews on the basis that they were the people who crucified Jesus, to the Crusades and the attempt to take the Holy Land for Christ, to the first ghetto in Venice established in the early 16th century, to the presentation of Shylock in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, to the horrors of the Nazi Holocaust. The catalogue of anti-Semitism within Europe is long insidious and disturbing, and we are its heirs. So it is with great care that we begin our series looking at the New Testament text, sometimes called the Letter to the Hebrews. And as we negotiate this text over the next couple of months, a text written by a Jew to a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles, we will need to be alert to our language and to our presuppositions as we go through, because it is going to keep raising issues about the relationship of Judaism to Christianity to non-Judaism. As with all forms of racism, anti-Semitism can sneak up on us unawares. And as with all forms of racism, it's not always easy for us to have a sufficient perspective on our own views to fully avoid problematic language and ideas. As Christians, we need to be alert to the fact that we can easily caricature Judaism as a religion of legalism against which we present Christianity as a religion of grace. And we need to hear very clearly the voice of Jewish scholars who remind us that the law in Judaism is encountered by those who live it as a means of grace and not as a source of oppression. And as a church which has been active in supporting the rights of Palestinians who have had their land taken and their homes destroyed by the Israeli expansion into the occupied territories, we need to be very clear that our criticism of the actions of the Israeli state do not become a fear or a negativity about those who are Jewish by heritage and religion. If you want to go to our uh, website, you can see uh, a letter that I wrote as minister here relating to this recently to our local MP here. We are also, uh, for example, registered as a Kairos congregation. And so we're committed to a process of boycott, divestment and sanctions as a protest against Israel's occupation of Palestine. But as the sign outside our building reminds us, we also stand in solidarity with both our Jewish and our Muslim neighbours. Getting this right can be difficult, especially 
when we come to passages in the Bible, such as our reading from this morning, from the beginning of the book of Hebrews. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. You see the divisiveness that can come through a passage like that. Well, as opening phrases for biblical books go, it's certainly at the punchy end of things. Not for Hebrews, some standardised, formulaic, Pauline greeting, such as we get in, I don't know, Romans or 1 Corinthians or Galatians or whatever, where you get a sort of a salutation and a short prayer of thanksgiving, a kind of, hi, nice to see you, here's the letter I'm sending, and then you get on with it. Hebrews just jumps straight in with the meaty and controversial theology. And here we get a clue that this isn't a normal New Testament letter. Did you know that Hebrews actually lacks almost all of the conventions of an ancient Greek epistle? The conclusion from this is that what we have here in Hebrews isn't a letter at all. It's probably best described as a sermon, which means that technically, I suppose, I'm preaching a sermon on a sermon, which is rather pleasing now I come to think about it. I mean, it's a sermon about Jesus, but it's also scripture, which means that it is also God's word. So my words are words about words, which are themselves the word, but which are also about the word. Keep up. Anyway. The sermon of Hebrews is a rather shadowy document in New Testament terms. We don't know who wrote it, or from where, or to whom. We can have a best guess at these, and the best guess from scholars is that it was written sometime in the late 60s, which is roughly some 30 to 40 years after, you know, 30 odd years after Jesus, and that it was written to a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles living in the city of Rome. That's the best guess. In terms of authorship, Martin Luther suggested that it might have been written by Apollos. But there's nothing really to substantiate this, apart from the fact that the description of Apollos from the book of Acts seems to be a description of the kind of person who comes through from the words of the text. Um, so from Acts 18, uh, we read, Now there came to Ephesus a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. He was an eloquent man, well-versed in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with a burning enthusiasm and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Maybe he wrote it. If not him, maybe somebody a bit like that. I find the desire to imagine the author of Hebrews as a woman very attractive. Uh, there are, to the best of our knowledge, no biblical books written by women. And here we have an unnamed book. So scholars have over the years tried very hard to suggest that there may be a female author. Uh, and suggestions have included uh, Mary Magdalene as well as pretty much every other woman named in the New Testament. 
Regrettably, it was almost certainly written by a man, and I will be using he to describe the author as I go through. It's important for us to remember that the Bible is an almost exclusively male text, and we can't impose our contemporary desire for equality and egalitarianism onto it wholeheartedly. Well, whoever wrote it, one of the central concerns addressed by this sermon is the experience of those receiving it that Jesus is in some way absent from them. <coughs> Hebrews describes two ways in which Jesus is perceived to be absent. Firstly, he is absent in time, and secondly, he is absent in space. So temporarily speaking, Jesus is in the past. The stories about him are all set in his lifetime, and that was then, but this is now. So he's a historical character, but he is not now. That's one way in which Jesus is absent. The other, in terms of space, spatially speaking, according to Hebrews, Jesus is not on the earth. We've, we've just heard. He has ascended into the heavens and is seated at the right hand of his Father on high. So, from the perspective of those in this congregation, possibly in Rome, Jesus is absent in two very definite ways. He's in the past and he's in heaven which means he is very definitely not here and now. And this was obviously something of a deal for the people to whom the author's writing, because he then picks this up and begins to address it. And so the preacher of Hebrews begins to address this problem of the perceived absence of Jesus by taking his congregation on a journey through a variety of different ways in which he believes Jesus can become known to them in their present reality. And these different ways of encountering Jesus are going to inform our engagement with the book of Hebrews over the coming weeks. As we too discover, I hope, that just because Jesus is past and ascended does not mean that he cannot also be present and real for us today. And the preacher begins by establishing a trajectory of continuity between the revelation of God in olden times and the revelation of God in Jesus. And this is where we get back to our slightly problematic opening. And here we do have to turn on our anti-Semitism antennae as we explore what he means by this. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. The important thing to say here is that this is no mandate to ignore or denigrate the revelation of God through the religion and traditions of the Jewish people. The Jewish prophets and the books which bear their names and indeed the whole collection of texts which we call the Old Testament and which the Jews call the Hebrew Bible. The whole thing is a revelation of God's activity in drawing people to himself in love. And we need to keep hearing it in that context. This doesn't mean, of course, that we have to read the Old Testament uncritically 
any more than we have permission to read the New Testament uncritically. We've been given brains, we should turn them on when we read scripture. We have to ask questions of all of our scriptures to test the nature of the revelation of God that we find there. But we cannot write off the revelation of God that we meet in those parts of scripture that we perhaps don't like so much. The church father, Marcion, was famous for wanting to cut out of the scriptures any bits that he thought didn't reflect the kind of view of God that he wanted to believe in. So for him, the Old Testament was gone straight off, you know, because that was, that was a violent God, and we don't want that one. Uh, and then he also started cutting out various parts of the New Testament as well. Um, and you end up with the, the Marcion canon is quite a, quite a select bit of what we would call the Bible. I don't think that's the way forwards, and certainly Christian history has judged that Marcion probably got that wrong. If there's something in the Old Testament, for example, that we struggle with, the insight from the book of Hebrews is that we just have to struggle with it. We can't just ignore it or cut it out. As those who came to the Whitley Lecture here at Bloomsbury a few weeks ago would have discovered, there is great insight and godly reflection to be found from spending time with some of the deeply distressing tales of violence in the Old Testament. Helen Painter, this year's lecturer, uh, led us in some fascinating explorations of stories of violence against women. We looked at the Levite's concubine, for example. Uh, it's a horrific story. But actually spending time wrestling with the difficulty of that can bring great blessing to those who read it today. And it's one of my frustrations with the lectionary of set readings for Sundays, which many churches follow each week, including some from time to time, us. Uh, one of my frustrations with that kind of set pattern of three-year readings is that they, they skip over the bits of the Bible which are unpalatable or problematic. I'm actually toying with the idea of a preaching series on the anti-lectionary, where we deliberately spend a bit of time with those parts of the Bible that we would normally ignore because we find them difficult to read. Now, we may come back to that. Actually, in terms of um, future preaching, when we get beyond Hebrews, uh, I'm going to be uh, asking around, I'm going to give some pieces of paper out at some point and ask you to suggest stuff, because it's quite nice to know what people would like sermons on. So just begin to give a bit of thought to that, and we'll gather some of that in as we, as we plan for the future. Well, at the very minimum, we need to hear loud and clear from the preacher of Hebrews that there is a continuity between the words that God spoke through the Jewish prophets and the words that he speaks through his son, Jesus. But in fact, the preacher of Hebrews goes further than this because he describes the people to whom God spoke in olden times as the, quote, ancestors or fathers of those in the congregation listening to his sermon. And whilst that would certainly have been true of the Jews in this mixed congregation in possibly Rome, it's a very interesting theological move that even the Gentiles, the non-Jews in that congregation, are encouraged to look to 
the people of God in olden times as their ancestors. There is, for the writer of Hebrews, no decisive break between Judaism and Gentile Christianity. It's a continuity of revelation from God speaking through the prophets of old to God speaking through his son, and it's a continuity of community between the people of God in olden times and the people of God in the time he's writing. The people of God are as they have always been, those who hear, embrace, and persevere in the word of God, regardless of their religious affiliation. And if this is true of Jews and Gentiles, I would want to suggest that it is also true of those who seek the truth of the word of God in other religious traditions. We're back to our sign outside our building again. Including, I think, those religious traditions that have come into being since the book of Hebrews was written. None of us have a monopoly on truth. Whether Jew or Gentile, whether Christian or Muslim, whether Baptist or Roman Catholic, whatever. What we have in common is that God reaches out to us in love to draw us to himself. And we also have in common that none of us fully understands what that means. For those of us who search for God within the Christian tradition, however, I think Hebrews does begin to give us some clues as to what it might mean for us. And the suggestion, I think, that comes through this ancient sermon is that searching for God in the Jesus tradition takes place through an unswerving focus on the revelation of God in the person of Jesus. In these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. And I can't help but wonder if Christians spent more time focusing on Jesus as the word of God and less time on telling others where they're wrong in their belief and practice, we might all find ourselves quite a bit closer to the one we're actually seeking. So what does it mean for us to keep our focus on Jesus? Who is this Jesus? What does it mean to say that Jesus reveals God to us? Well, here we get to the preacher of Hebrews' presentation of Jesus as the sustainer of all things. This is, this is where we get to the title for today's sermon. Jesus, the one who sustains. Jesus, the sustainer. If you're a regular here at Bloomsbury, you may hear an echo of the blessing that I often use at the end of a service, when I use the phrase, uh, may the blessing of God Almighty, creator, redeemer, and sustainer be with you all. And there I'm using that as a kind of uh, synonym for father, son, and spirit, creator, redeemer, sustainer. In that formula, it's the spirit who sustains us. In Hebrews... It is Jesus who sustains, not just Christians, but all things and all people. Jesus is described as the one through whom God created the worlds, and as the one who sustains all things by his powerful word. This is a vision of the universal, the kind of cosmic Christ, present in all times and at 
all places. The complete opposite to the congregation's experience of Christ as past and distant. This is Jesus active at the beginning of the universe, present in every atom and molecule, at one with creation in all its diversity, drawing all things towards their eternal conclusion in the all-embracing love of God. I have a, I have a friend who runs a website called Christian Animism, which offers a fusion of ideas that I think helpfully reflect this concept that we meet here in Hebrews, of Jesus being in and through all things. Animism is the idea that all things are alive, that all things have some spark of eternity within them that gives them life. And animist religions are often thought of as the belief systems of indigenous religions, as opposed to the more structured belief of what we have come to know as the organized religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. My friend Noel Mules, however, suggests that the fundamental insight of animism that spirituality permeates all of creation can offer something profound to those who seek God in Jesus if Jesus is understood as the one who is in and through all things and who sustains all things by his powerful word. It may sound counterintuitive to those of us who've been schooled within the rationalist characterizations of animal, vegetable or mineral, it's the first question of 20 questions, isn't it? We, we categorise things. Alive, if alive, what kind of alive or not alive? The ancient Hebrews saw no such distinction. They were quite happy to speak of God uh, as having given life to all things and that this God-given life existed in all things. As we saw in our first reading from the Psalms, they would call the sun the moon, the stars, fire, hail, snow, frost, winds, mountains, and hills, they would call all of those things to praise God. Within the Jewish tradition, there was no such thing as an inanimate object because all things existed to give glory to the one who had called them into being. It's a bit like Jesus when he says, if, if, if the crowds are silent, the, the rocks and stones will cry out in praise. I think Noel captures this quite well. Um, he says, the creative word and spirit breath of God, both the source and the most intense expression of life imaginable, not only brings all things into being, but sustains them moment by moment as well. The earliest Christian voices saw Christ at the heart of this reality. And then he quotes Colossians, in Christ all things hold together. And our reading from Hebrews. He sustains all things by his powerful word. The insight from Hebrews is that the word of God, spoken through the prophets of old, is most fully heard in the divine word that is Jesus. And this word made flesh is a word of divine love. Spoken so loudly that it echoes throughout all creation, from the very beginning to the very end infusing all things with the love and life of God. But this insight is only the beginning. It's the starting point for everything that follows. 
And in the coming weeks, we shall be journeying through the various different ways in which the book of Hebrews invites us to encounter Jesus. But for this morning, we're going to stay with this universal vision of Jesus as the one who creates and sustains all things by his powerful word. Because if all things reflect the life of Christ, then everything is sacred. If all things have their source in God and are called into being by Christ, then there is no such thing as the profane, because everything is holy. From the food we eat to the grounds that produces it, the whole earth is filled with God's glory, as the prophet Isaiah put it. And if everything has life, and if everything is sacred, then everything is connected. This is, this is a really profound insight. Those in the congregation of the preacher to the Hebrews were worried that Jesus was absent from them, stuck in the past or up in heaven. But the insight of the sustaining Jesus is that all things are connected, whether past or present or on earth or in heaven. Christ is in and through all things. So the preacher of Hebrews can describe Jesus as seated at the right hand of the Father, but see no contradiction between this and his vision of Jesus in and through all things, in all times and all places. And if everything is alive, and if everything is sacred, and if everything is connected, then everything and everyone is of value to God. No one race is God's sole chosen nation not even post-Brexit Britain. No one path can claim absolute priority over all others, not even my path, the one I've chosen. There is no place for exclusionary religion in a world sustained by Jesus. This is the great challenge that Hebrews brought to its original congregation in Rome. And it's the great challenge I think it still brings to us today when we encounter it. Do we really believe that Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word? Not in a scientific way. I'm not suggesting here some God of the gaps theology where Jesus is equated to Hawking radiation or dark matter or some such. Rather, do we believe that because the love of God spoken in Jesus is so loud and definitive that all things and in all times and all places are deeply and eternally loved by God? Do we believe that God's love is at work in Christ, drawing all things and all people to himself? Do we believe that all things are brought to life by Christ, who makes everything sacred, and who connects all things at their deepest and most primal level. Because if we do, we can be released from all our anxieties about whether we are successful or not in saving people from some wrathful, vengeful deity. And so much of what religion has made itself ceases to be relevant. If God loves all things in Christ, and if Christ is in and through all things, 
and sustains all things by his powerful word. So many of the battles that we have fought between who's in and who's out and who's going to hell and who isn't and which religion is right and which religion is wrong and how do we relate to this creation and do we steward it and tend it or disregard it and all of that passes. And we are freed in the love of God expressed in Christ to join our lives with the life of the one who sustains all things. And this is the one that brings us and me and you and all of creation to its loving eternal conclusion. And I think that sounds a lot like good news, which is why I'm preaching it. <laughs> Do we believe it? Are we prepared to live it?